0: welcome back into The Project Space, a podcast featuring some of the incredible artists who have participated in the Project Space Residency here at the Visual Cities Workshop in Rochester, New York. My name is Ernest Davis. I'm a visual artist and the assistant curator here at VSW. The Project Space Residency has served both regional, national, and international artists for many years providing a studio space and access to VSW facilities. You'll actually learn a bit more about the history of the Project Space Residency in this episode. Because while VSW has had a residency in some shape or form from very early in its existence, the structure of the Project Space now, which emphasizes providing space for local and non-local residents, and also offering opportunities to engage with the Rochester community, actually began with the artist we hear from in this episode, Meredith Davenport. I spoke with Meredith about her experience as a returning resident and how her interactions with community impacted her work. And speaking of community, you'll hear her mention some names that might be familiar to you in this podcast space, namely Tate Shaw, who is the editor of the VSW Press and a future guest host on this podcast. Stay tuned for that. Meredith also mentions Granville Carroll, who is a former Project Space resident and is featured in the very first episode of this podcast. Take a listen to that episode next if you have not done so already. Meredith also speaks about Joan Lyons, who is a founder of the VSW Press. And Meredith refers to a talk Joan gave during her most recent exhibition at the Memorial Art Gallery in Rochester. Check out our show notes for links to Meredith's work, as well as resources she is currently using in her research that you can refer to as we speak about them in our conversation. All right, let's get to it.
1: My name is Meredith Davenport, and I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. I grew up on the East Coast, but um, I still have a lot of family in Louisiana. And my practice brings together a sort of a life as a photojournalist and documentary photographer and the questions that arise from the way those kinds of images live in the world now and the stories that are attached to those media images, both personal and political.
0: And That kind of leads into some of my questions later, um, because like we've talked about your background as a photojournalist. I'm going to hold on to that question once we get down the line. So, but let's talk about the residency. And first, I want to ask you, how did you come to apply to to do the residency at the project space?
1: This is actually my third time doing a residency at VSW, and it was created um, in part to honor Rick Hawk, who was my partner mm-hmm. and. At the time, Tate had started building the residency. Um, Tate asked me to come and do a residency here, and this was before I was with Rick. And it was anyway. Yeah. But by that, by the time I came and did the residency, Rick and I were uh, a couple, and um, and Rick got sick at the same time that I was supposed to be doing my residency here. So mm-hmm. I, but I, it was wonderful because I was able to be here and to be near him and to do my work. Yeah. And, and the yeah. second time. Um, I also, I did a residency related to his death and an exhibition. Um, I decided to apply for the residency um, here at the SW because I was finishing up a project I've been working on for about seven years. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain part of the project that I'm still wrestling with. And I find the space here to be really, um, rich emotionally and sort of creatively. It's a beautiful old building and there's a great community around, which I am very grateful to be part of. And I thought it would be a good time to both reflect on the work I had just done and to kind of try and tease out this last kind of thread that I still can't quite figure out that was related to um, Louisiana and the sort of the geography and the, the psychogeography of Louisiana uh-huh. uh, related to the history of slavery and my family's relationship to to slavery and sort of teasing out the these ideas around levees and rivers that overflow and this engulfment that happens due to the, the natural cycles of the place and how that impacts the sort of psychological, what I consider extremely repressive psychological energies that can live there yeah I came here or applied to come here in part to get feedback from mm-hmm. the community the books my books had just been published at that point so I I hadn't really put them out into the world mm-hmm. in that that much and so I was interested in that and um, for me residencies are often a time to find a can it, weirdly enough, I think people think of them as retreats, but in fact, I think they're often a time to connect and interconnect with people and get unexpected intersections of ideas. Like like I was down in the lantern slide area and just messing around and looking at Louisiana and looking at levees and looking at rivers, and all of a sudden I found these weird fish egg images uh-huh. that are still sort of hanging on my studio wall and I know they're going to fit in somewhere, but I can't quite figure out where they're going to go or yeah. how they're going to play out. So I think th- having the time is, is part of it and having that kind of devoted time. But I think it's also the interactions that you have with people during the open studios and yeah. then the other residents or the f- people who are here, who yeah. work here and teach here
0: and stuff. Well, okay. So then I'm curious about, so then what was that like when you were here? Did it meet your expectations or how did it affect the work? I'm really interested in that.
1: Well, it was interesting because I was interested in thinking about books and I knew the archive here and I, I've spent some time in the research center, but I am not a person who had that book knowledge. And so I'm interested and I know Tate does. Mm -hmm. And so I said, Tate, would you... Uh, give me some a list of things you think I should check out he he knows my work and um and so he did he gave me this amazing box of books that I just sat and spent time with and artists that I had never heard of Mm and um I let them just kind of be there and seep into the way I was thinking about things so that was really really amazing and being able to work down in the um Print room and just start printing things out. And the conversations like Granville came in, and we were just ha- hanging out, and I had yeah. a great conversation with him. and then and then, you know, the open studio that I had these wonderful exchanges, and people just spent all this time. so it it worked out to be quite rich in that yeah. way and and not orchestrated. You know, just sort of I asked kind of for what I needed. and And then the rest of the time, I just kind of played around with the things I was getting and um, taking them in,
0: okay, yeah. So then um, let's talk about those books. Just want to make sure I get the timeline right. So when you ca- so, what did you come here to work on? And in terms of the books, what books are you referring to? So
1: I published these books, this set of – it's actually one book, but it's got four chapbooks as the collection. It's called Membering. Yeah. And it's this um, thing I've been working on for seven years about my family history in each – Chat book in the collection has a different set of narratives that are kind of collided together. Um, the one that's the kind of easiest to explain is a book I call The Baby Book, which is as I started to research my family's history, my father shared a box, a, tupper, a big plastic storage bin of stuff uh, mm-hmm. with me. And in that box was his baby book, but also along with a lot of other random things, was a deed for a 14-year-old girl named Elizabeth who my family enslaved. And mm-hmm. so I took the text from that book, from that document, and the text from my dad's baby book and my baby book and images and kind of collided all that together to respond to that history. And so and there was a bunch... Of, I used... One book has a series of of surveillance images from my dad's backyard combined with this really racist text that was one of my ancestors thesis for Columbia University, this sort of pseudo-anthropological mm-hmm. thing. And so mm-hmm. um, so I just finished that, and it, that was a seven-year, very long uh, emotional process. And I wanted – there was this this one last piece that I was trying to figure out. So I think I proposed that – to come and work on that here. But I also brought the books to share because I hadn't really shared them. Yeah. So that, those were the two things that I was working on.
0: All right, I'm really curious. So the, is the one last piece was a part of membering.
1: Initially, I went. I wanted it to be part of membering, okay. but um, it just—I could never make it fit. And I had this opportunity to publish the books with Antenna okay. Paper Machine in New Orleans, and I just decided to let it go and to maybe think it might be its own book. Yeah. And so there's all these images I've collected over the seven years that I've been working on it, and so I put them up. I sort of poked around the. I, I have some text that I. Was playing around with. I made a couple mock-up sort of things that um, I st- I still haven't resolved it. You know, it's one of those things I, we were talking earlier. I I I'm still trying to figure out what what it is I'm looking for in that work
0: and it, when it's, it'll tell me when it's ready. I guess. Is that how the other books have come together, or have it has it been more clear and less kind of um, amorphous or less?
1: The other books were a little clearer Okay. although i also had a was grateful to have a year sabbatical to sit with them for a long t- long periods of time but the year i took the year just to sit with them and then they kind of bring, came together huh. right um in the last residency of the year that i had done yeah um and they didn't change much after that this one does isn't doing that. So, and I know it's there. I know there's something there. I just can't quite figure out. I have video as well. So I put, I shared that on the open studio. Like I just Mm -hmm. put one of the things that was most interesting about the open studio is I accidentally left my journal out and people, and then people started really loving it. And I was like, (laughs) okay, I'm an open book. I'm just going to let this happen. And, and that was some of the most interesting responses were from the journal.
0: Yeah. Um, so because were you journaling right before Open Studios opened, or yeah,
1: I was trying to ca- I was trying to capture my thought process. Yeah, because what happens, you know, I'm an artist educator. A teaching artist, I guess yes. is the, the right word. I'm trying to use that because I think it's actually important, right? Yes, it is. I am a teaching artist. Yes. And so as a teaching artist, I, my, and as a middle-aged woman, my ideas fly out of my head. And then I kind of have to spend another like year trying to catch up with them again. Yeah. And so I was trying to keep notes on my process to hold some of this time and this experience yes. right before we had the open studios. So then I just left it there and then people are like oh what's this and I'm like uh oh yeah sure you can look at that because there was nothing finished I had the books that were finished yeah, so I yeah. that was people were looking at those and then the rest was really just kind of all over the place hmm.
0: that's it okay because so I'm actually interested in hearing you talk about the title membering I came up I thought I invented the
1: title, which I didn't. <laughs> um, which is fine. I'm okay with that. In fact, I've heard that it's actually referenced, uh, maybe referencing a Toni Morrison.
0: Okay, yes. We did talk about this very much. Yeah, yeah. I
1: think, although okay. I've never found it, and I would love to find the reference. Yeah. Um, uh, and I certainly didn't intend to do that, um, I. but I did feel like this process is connecting to a very deep child self, which, so the membering, the kind of stumbling over words and making up words Mm -hmm. is definitely referencing this deeper child within me. Um, But I also liked the play. I love a good play on words. And I think the remembering and dismembering is kind of exactly what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a sort of violent subtext to it, which is also, Definitely part of this process, and so that was the title. I'd be curious to hear what you think.
0: Well, I, yeah, because and I, and I, we talked so much when you were here as a resident, and I, I think we did exchange about this because I remember you mentioning something about Toni Morrison, and I don't know why it came to mind the book *Beloved*. Yeah, and um, but when I was thinking about and looking through the work on your website, and then thinking about the word again. To me, I was, th- I was thinking of notions around embodiment and disembodiment, which mm. is slightly different. It's sort of the same thing, but slightly different than thinking about membering and dismembering. But I also was thinking about how, you know, we don't say membering. You say dismembering and how that's the, you know, it, it conjures up the, the dismembering when you just see the word membering there. But there's something about the way the book looks and how you photographed the books and also with the text. I'm wondering about the the word embodiment because I feel like that implies some kind of presence and um, an absence, but not just physically, but also sort of the psycho emotional, abstract but intangible, like the intangible parts of it. Um, and and that's sort of the connotation that that kept coming in into my mind and thinking about perhaps what it means for you to have to go into your family's history um, and photograph in the present, being in Louisiana, but not being there, sort of thinking about um, th- what we take with us in terms of our genetics, but our um, how we're socialized. And, and then, and again, those things are passed down that you don't really, um, aren't able to put your, your finger on. So like these embodiments and disembodiments. So does that make sense? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Okay, okay. Um
1: yeah, I think that um and I like that association. That would be in alignment with what I kind of would hope somebody would associate with that word. Um I thought a lot during this process and still think a lot about um things like epigenetics and like what we carry and mm-hmm. literally in our bones. Mm-hmm. Um and I I say this, I've said this before, my sister and I are very different in this way, like, and my, my father and I were very similar that I feel like we both carried the physical memory of the violence perpetuated by our ancestors in our bodies Mm -hmm. and uh my sister doesn't she just has no and I and I I don't say it with judgment I I I envy her in a certain way Mm -hmm. um she's like yep just happened wasn't us not me not my problem and it's not that she doesn't think about race or racism in the world but I my father and I it was it is a very physical experience the Mm -hmm. level of shame and sort of um that's it's it's like it's in me, yeah. right? And yeah. so, and I know it was true with my father because we had some very um, hard and uh, uncharacteristic conversations. Like parts of his personality came out when we were talking about this that were uh, unfamiliar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because it's such a deeply rooted, and I watched my father struggle with it in different ways and try and find ways to to um to 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 soothe it somehow
0: yeah Yeah. there's some because i you know and i and i'm i'll say this just full disclosure because i think about the word empathy all the time in terms of my practice and um and how uh, how complex the word is and and (laughs) friends know that i go on all the time because i am very annoyed at how flighty or i'll say like shallow um, the definition of empathy is, um, but that's sort of what came to mind. It's not necessarily that your sister doesn't have empathy, but it's sort of like a, there's there's a lot of like intangibles that go with being able to empathize, and and this feels like you know like, yeah like an intergenerational way of empathizing that also transcends time, and in even in the photo history conversation, there's there's a lot of uh, re envisioning of how we think about time. As being something that isn't linear, um, but also uh, works differently depending on who you are and your position, your circumstances. Um, because, you know, think about like Mark Seeley talking about racial time in terms of uh, from a racial point of view, but it's similar, just sort of in your position. Just how do you deal with this thing that happened at a very particular time, but um, it transcends that particular moment? How do you approach that? How do you deal with that? Photographically?
1: Um, I think that's one of the reasons that this work isn't only photographic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's, the, I think, that going back to what I was trying to do here at the workshop, I haven't found the text that helps me link the pictures together because mm-hmm. it is, they're kind of equally important in this process to me. One's not subject to the other. Yeah. Um, but in the books that I was working on, um, the text. Helped to solve that problem in a certain way because um, it linked these different times, and then the images could sort of dance with that yeah. linkage. And because um, I don't, I don't know. I think it's hard to do with just photos. And I think photos, and that's the thing that I also am really interested in is how they change through time. Like yeah. what, what me, one thing means at one point and the what it means
0: now and how, how we move how that
1: dance that changes
0: yeah um I'm glad you brought up the text because I had a question about that yeah. as well um and I, I don't know if this connects at all but another way I was thinking about remembering and it kind of alludes to it um and in, in talking about Toni Morrison using it that it's sort of you know the vernacular way of saying remember where you know you're talking to someone back and forth, and in certain parts of the English-speaking world, they don't say, "Oh, do you remember?" They just go, "Remember." Yeah. They don't say, "Do you remember?" It's just "Remember," and um, that's, that's that's vernacular. That's familiar. That's the way that you speak to each other um, casually. Um, it's especially in the South. And I'm just wondering about um, the text because the way the way the, uh, the text is. Is really really beautiful, and there is also for perhaps this dismemberment in even the text that it is that you don't ever I think write in full sentences. So I'm gonna read one uh, that's that's kind of early, uh, and is you just write has long slender fingers like his mother's beautiful hands, and beautiful hands is it's it's a full sentence, but it also leaves a lot of information um, out. And it assumes certain things that it's almost like I'm reading in on someone else's conversation, um, has long slender fingers like his mother's. And I, as someone who, uh, it, you know, as, as an outsider reading this, I don't know who this is. Um, but it also leaves room for me to imagine what could this possibly be like, especially alongside the photograph. But yeah. Can you talk about how you're using text?
1: Yeah. Um, So there's only one piece of text in there, um, well, in the bodies of the book. The explanations at the end of the back of the books that tell you where the text is from are my text. Okay, But that text, and most, I would say 95% of the text in the book is actually exerted from do other existing documents right yeah. so so I kind of think of it as documentary poetry in a way but I'm really obviously decontextualizing it and so that particular quote is from my dad's baby book and it's them describing his, his they described his body in great detail mm. with reverence and then contrasting that with Elizabeth whose whose body was described as a as a sort of Sound healthy and sound in body and mind, which is the legal term for saying she's a virgin. yeah and, you know the the kind of difference in the way these two children were were described and remembered um was something I wanted to think about and confront. And there's only one section where I write a a dialogue with my father and I, and it it was a remembered dialogue. It's as close to my memory as I could. Get it at, at the time. So yeah, that anthropological text is awful, but it's all
0: pulled from a
1: thesis from Columbia University. Oh, interesting. Successful. Okay. Doctorate of philosophy.
0: Uh, yeah. So then they got their doctorate, and <laughs> yeah,
1: they did, and they became a quote unquote progressive New York State senator. Senator.
0: Oh, it's it's really it's really fascinating that uh that language, and again, like thinking how we're talking about. Time and um, what you're doing in in taking these words out of context, I find it challenging to read and challenging to um, there's okay. I'll just kind of describe it as like a lot of like time traveling that has to happen um, in thinking about where the words come from and in the context that uh, in which that exists and how you've truncated them and dispersed them. Then I have to deal with how I feel about the words being really beautiful as well and then again that disconnect between my experience and then having to relate somehow to kind of put that all together like there's a lot of confluences of space and time happening at the same time but yeah yeah
1: yeah I I still have um I don't know if mixed feelings is the right word um a lot of feelings and thoughts about the impact that the work has on other people, mm-hmm. um, specifically Black people, to be honest with you, yeah. um, I think about that, um, and I'm not sure there's an answer. I I didn't come up with an answer with it, um, mm-hmm. but I'm really aware, and it's the I'm always grateful that people will take it on. Uh, anybody will take it on, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> any of any color <laughs> or race, <laughs> because it is a lot. Um, but I'm also I, I had the a really great experience in New Orleans working with the antenna paper machine and there were a couple there was one young intern named Malik um, who who really was interested and in, and and it was really amazing to talk with him about it um, because he he experienced the books in vastly different ways than I do mm-hmm. um, One of my the one that I still, uh, find it sort of an enigma, but also love, uh, I love them all. But, um, the one with the deer mm-hmm. to me, I, I don't understand how or why it works, but it does. And that one he, he found particularly, um, intense to experience.
0: And that's one of the surveillance uh, yeah. cameras yeah. from your dad's camera or Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that's just, that's life experiences that surveillance images and those images mean something very different to him than they do to me. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a giant question mark. Uh, I don't, I don't know how, yeah, it's just a big question mark.
0: Well, I'm kind of curious about, um, how people receive them here. I don't know, like what was your experience with other people who are engaging here in Rochester?
1: Um, I, well, I really enjoyed talking to you about them when we did. Actually, <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I also really um, Tate has been a gave has given me a lot of really good and interesting um, feedback. I mm-hmm. guess. Um, uh, I also I think I had a pretty good conversation with Granville about them as well, um, and others. I. I it was I was really a, almost a little overwhelmed by the the open studio because there was a lot of there was a lot of energy and there was a lot of conversation and people mm-hmm. were really interested. I had a, a conversation with a bunch of grad students from RIT and from here okay. that was really awesome. Okay. Um, so yeah, I I yeah I, I got some good feedback.
0: Yeah, because I, I, I guess I'm and I I asked that question because I was actually thinking of about your experience talking with people in New Orleans or in Southern Louisiana, mm-hmm. Louisiana, I'm not going to assume that it's a monolith. Like there are many different types of people in Louisiana and the South is very varied, but just kind of wondering about those experiences because we spoke about it um, several times and, and, and also about like our experiences with like family history and our family historians and going back and digging through that um, resistance to, um, what you find. And, you know, I, I think I offered about, I, you know, have an aunt who kind of was our historian. And then when she found out, I I don't know what she found out, but I think in response to probably some like traumatic information, she just sort of invented our origin story in Africa and was like, well, we must be from here because so-and-so looks like this. And -and so-and-so looks like that. And like, I don't think you can just say that without, (laughs) any concrete evidence, you know, just because someone has these characteristics that sort of look like someone from a certain part of Africa, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But what I took from that was like, I, I wonder what she found out. And I wonder if this is why she's fabricating like a huge chunk of our history. Our, my family's from the South and um and and it's not necessarily every black person in the United States. It's experienced because of course, black people are from all over the place. But mine specifically, my background is, um, my ancestors were enslaved, and my uh, even my parents were born in the South. So I'm very, like, a recent, I guess, descendant of slavery, and also a recent descendant of the Great Migration, and so growing up in Los Angeles, for instance. But I'm always curious about those conversations, especially in uh, out of a Southern context, um, and especially in a context, let's say, like Rochester, which does have a history in slavery, but the northeast ideas around slavery are very different, um, especially in Rochester, where um, they really adore uh, their abolitionist history, (laughs) (laughs) like adore Frederick Douglass and things like that. Um, But a lot of other histories go acknowledged in terms of enslaved populations being um, enslaved here.
1: Well, that's the subject of my next project actually okay great. yeah no I'm actually because I'm interested having lived and you you have we share this and that we've lived in different we're sort of southern but not southern and, and yeah. I it's hard because most southerners would call me a carpetbagger because I mm. I don't have the accent and I, I was born in Mon- uh, I was born in Shreveport Louisiana but I grew up in Baltimore mm-hmm. and so but I grew up going back and forth to my dad's I would spend two months a year at my dad's house in Louisiana and so I can kind of code switch back and forth. I can't put the accent on completely, but I can pretty much do everything else. And yeah. I have all the other characteristics of a Southern family, including Gothic drama and, <laughs> you know, inheritance stories. And um, so, but I... I do understand. And I've always been fascinated as a young girl, even coming down, like going to this world where I had, there was this maid, I almost said I had this maid, there mm-hmm. was this woman, yeah. Maddie, who raised my sister and I and was a big influence on our lives. We used to go to, we'd been to her house and we would see how different her house was. She lived in one of these houses that used to be a crop sharing house. And then we met her family, but also I learned later that she was a gift from my grandmother to my dad. Uh, he, she, My grandmother paid Maddie to take care of us. And, um, and so going from that to Baltimore, where, you know, it was a, a more diverse, middle class, literally working class Baltimore. Mm-hmm. It, it's a different conversation. I shared this work with two white curators in Louisiana and both of them. Said they wouldn't touch that work with a ten foot pole because um, it just it's too it's too close to the bone mm-hmm. for their institutions and yeah, hmm.
0: Um, did they say more about that? I'm just curious, like in terms of uh, too close or even is that based off of their understanding or based off an of an assumption of of an audience?
1: I think, uh, and I'm just translating what my from my memory, but um. That they just they're, they they're weren't really ready to have
0: that conversation yet. Um, yeah. That's interesting because um, I mean i'm I'm just assuming that it's an assumption on the audience and also thinking of curatorial roles in this in um, having to also kind of relate to the work so that they can kind of translate it for an audience. How does a white curator? Uh, who does not want to confront what you are confronting, or does not want to translate or do the work that that needs to be done in order to translate this for an audience? Um, that's I think that's an interesting mediator um, in terms of this because only because I think <laughs> that there is more of an openness than than they would would understand around those subjects because in my experience. It's it's everywhere. <laughs> when you go yeah. to Louisiana. Um, the remnants of slavery are everywhere. And I, I think that people talk about it more openly than other people would assume who are not really from there. I don't know if that's your experience or
1: I agree. Um I was actually no, I think that depends on what socioeconomic class you're talking about, yeah, too. Yeah. Um and I think these institutions are more connected to a certain a higher socioeconomic class than, um, but but I will say like my experience on the ground doing this work was, um, was beautiful in some ways because I was surprised at how many people were open to the conversation, uh, both sort of white relatives of mine and black relatives of mine. So um, I, I would have made some Judgments beforehand that actually were really surprising and wonderful to to see play yeah, out. Maybe
0: they would. There would be some resistance from both sides of your family down yeah. there,
1: and it was there wasn't, and or at least some doors opened that maybe I wouldn't have expected to open, which was nice.
0: Yeah, um, I, I'm really, I'm yeah, I, I don't know. I'm really curious about that um, because just thinking about especially. With your when you're dealing with work that has a lot of this, I'll just call it like embodiment, and there's a lot of a lot of pain, a lot of violence, a lot of history and a lot of undoing and redoing of these things, then it becomes complicated because you are with the work, but you the work, I don't know if you would agree with this, but the work is also ahead of where these mediators are like curators and galleries and museums. And so,
1: yeah, no, I think, I think also institutions are oftentimes more conservative because of the funding and their patronage Mm -hmm. and possibly at the expense of the community that they're trying to engage.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, my next question is where are you now with the work and you mentioned that your next step involves Rochester somehow, but can you you talk about where things are at the moment?
1: Yeah. So I'm still wrestling with the psychogeography thing. Um, Mm -hmm. It's on my studio wall, and I often like to have at least two things going on at the same time so that I can bounce back and forth. So the next part of the work, I want to look at um, northern stories of my family history and in particular I have two stories I'm starting out with that I'm kind of following the thread of and the way it normally works is I start digging around in the archive and then I'll find something like a narrative or image or something like those fish images and I'll Mm -hmm. be like oh okay and then I put them up and then I'll start sort of just intuitively wandering through things. Um, One of the Threads from the South is a man named Josiah Davenport who was the founder of this, or he was the first enslaver, um, and he had a ship that went out of Providence, Rhode Island. Um, he was the captain of that ship. He wasn't the owner of it, and it was called the Cleopatra. It was mentioned in David Duke campaign speeches, which is a side side story. <laughs> I'm not even going to waste time on, but I happened to follow David Duke as a young photographer. I went down there and and followed him around for a couple weeks. Um, He was born and based out of Providence, Rhode Island, as were a bunch of my other ancestors. Um, So I'm interested in following his story more and learning more about him. And he had a ship, the Cleopatra, and it was sold. And the story goes that he was paid in money and in enslaved people. And he took the enslaved people from Savannah, Georgia down to New Orleans to sell them mm-hmm. the people and was convinced to use the people in, to drag a barge up the Mississippi River to settle this northern part. So that's how we ended mm-hmm. up in this tiny little place up in northern Louisiana. So so I'm interested in kind of picking up his story and looking at the implications of industry yeah. and sort of finding stories that help f- flesh that, that out and then there's these two characters and again some of these people I don't know if I'm directly related to but they have the Davenport name and we we started in Providence in like the 1600s so I sort of feel like there's probably some genetic connection yeah. at some point and so and it doesn't really matter to me it's not a journalism work so there's these Davenport brothers who are these two brothers who are magicians based out of Buffalo New York and mm-hmm. they um, had this act where they would put someone in a box and they would disappear and they were proven to be fraudsters. Um, But I'm I'm interested in using their story to think about erasure and this whole play of erasure in Hmm. the consequences of erasure. I think in the erasure of our family memory has deeper implications than just the obvious horror of erasing slavery but also i think it has some more oh. deeper consequences for me personally and my family and the way that my family uses narrative to disappear un- unhealthy or uncomfortable facts yeah yeah <laughs> so hmm. those are some of the fun things i'll be
0: working on in the next <laughs> couple of years relatively so <laughs> Uh, okay so this is interesting because you also mentioned like very slightly this like this is not uh, a journalism project but because we do we do get to see each other and talk a little bit outside of here um, and I know that you have a substantial background as a photojournalist and um, again it's important that you're also an educator okay and I'll preface this with a full disclosure because I don't I have a hard time thinking about photography in terms of genres. And so then I think how you think of a of a type of photograph is, a, you know, it's up to your interpretation and your definition. And that's kind of sometimes malleable. Um, but I also think that sometimes these genres can be limiting um, when we talk about photography in silos in that way. So anyway, so, and also I'm saying that because I assume that the way we work as photographers and as artists is a part of a continuum and maybe I'm wrong about that but I'm just wondering about when you say like oh this is not really journalism I totally get that but I'm wondering about your sensibilities um, in your practice and especially in this work and how you're approaching uh, this body of work wondering if it at all you can tie them into your sensibilities towards your work as a photojournalist and In terms of like your interests your how you approach it your method and even in the purposes or even in how you interpret this this work is there a flow there
1: yeah there is actually i'm starting to see it because when i first did it um i remember when i i went back (laughs) i have a really good friend who's a a journalist at npr and he came into my studio because i went to hunter and he came into my studio when I was starting grad school and he looked around and he goes, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Why do you mean by that?
1: Um, because they, they don't seem to like, they don't seem to play well together. Right. Interesting. Um, it, it felt like, and I had another friend who is a very well-known writer, um, and award-winning writer who I worked with very closely as a journalist. And, mm-hmm. and she said, Meredith, you can't just become an artist. Artists, people are born being artists. And so...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great. This is fascinating to me. Because, I mean, it's it's kind of expected, but I'm just like, oh, I, I've always wondered that about, and, and it's also like a pet peeve about photography that we don't have to really get into here. But um, this is, this kind of clocks. I'm not surprised yeah, at these.
1: well, and you, I, I think you can relate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I you know, I, I wandered into this. Um, I, I, I mean, I think I was always an artist. You know, I, I never liked the word photographer or artist or any of these things. Um, I'm a curious person with a camera, you know, and I understand and very much take on the contemporary concerns of photojournalism and the way that the power dynamics in in that act of and yeah. media and all of that stuff and Think about it a lot and talk about it a lot with my students, but for me, the camera has always been a tool for connection, and it allowed me to explore worlds. Like my first story, as a my as when I graduated, one of the first things I did um, was spend I don't know three or four years documenting a man I met from Louisiana named Thomas, and he was black, and I met him in a squat a squatting building in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I started photographing him and his girlfriend who were both struggling with addiction. And he cl- cl- cleaned up and got out of that situation, but his girlfriend didn't. And she was pregnant and they had a daughter who was born with crack in her system. I was there today, she was born and she was taken away. And Thomas spent, um, you know, a year, more getting her back and he got her back and was raising her on his own in yeah. East Harlem. And I just photographed him as a project, as a documentary project. Eventually it was published in the New York Times. It was great. And he's do- they had a wonder- have a wonderful life. I haven't talked to them in a long time, but we kept in touch for years. Um, And for me, that was a way to explore, like, what's this difference in race in the world and how can I understand it and how can yeah. I understand my father's name was Thomas. His name is Thomas. You know, there were lots of things about him that he was a- really interesting and very I'm um, smart and fun person to hang out with. So we, you know, anyway. So the camera was just always a tool for connection. I didn't I didn't really care what the it was the way it was my ticket to understanding the world. Yeah. Um, literally. And so and I was always interested in storytelling. And that's still a huge part of my practice now, and and maybe being a little uncomfortable in the work, um, which is also still <laughs> true today. Um, and um, but taking away something that I could share, and as a photojournalist. I was never interested in making the same picture that everybody else was making Mm -hmm. of an event. I was always interested in finding my own way of of seeing and experiencing it and to retelling it. And so that I think is the part I still hold Mm on to. I got very frustrated with media narratives. I did this story for National Geographic um, on Columbia which okay. was a place I lived for many years. And I, I didn't want to be a parachute journalist. I wanted to be an experience and take things in. So I lived in Latin America for seven years. And four of those in Colombia. and it's a country that I really came to love and a lot of people I came to really love there. And I proposed this story to National Geographic. And the story was, in retrospect, much more complicated mm-hmm. than a media narrative could hold. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about The same thing I'm talking about now, which is how a culture metabolizes violence. Mm -hmm. And so that was actually the beginning of where I am right now. And I was really interested in things like the kind of telenovela. um, They have this lifetime. They real life telenovelas where they bring in characters that are actually on the streets and they Mm -hmm. become movie stars. And I was, those kinds of things were really fascinating to me. Like, how is this, how is narrative being used to tolerate this, this violence that this place has lived through for so many generations? So I was disappointed in the way that came out Mm -hmm. um, and frustrated. And I think that was kind of the beginning of the end for me in journalism Hmm. I was like yeah I got to say some things that I can't do in this in this world and I had done so much and I had this amazing career I got went all over the world I did all this stuff and Mm -hmm. I mean there were other factors as well but for me going to grad school like the things that were hard and the things I'm still trying to find I I was used to this very kind of intensive work where I would get an assignment, I would work really hard on it, and then I would take a break, and I still have a hard time with that kind of rhythm of of, of an art practice. Um, I have things I wanna say that are much more internal, and I want the freedom to be able to use different tools to do that, but there's still, and this is gonna sound cheesy, but I'm gonna say it anyway, there's this pursuit of truth that's been make me cry, but it's true. Um, this pursuit of truth that's important to me um because it's what and we talked about sort of the comp coming from complicated family dynamics, the way that I've survived is by seeing things as they are. Mm-hmm. And so as much as I would love to make work about unicorns and rainbows and beautiful flowers. At the core of who I am is this pursuit of understanding what I see as being true in the world, not necessarily hitting somebody over the head with it at all, Yeah, but uh, that's always the core. And the tools, I use the same tools because it's just what I know so well now, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, I had the thought because I think there is an, a unicorn in the book. Oh, yeah, um, there is, actually. <laughs> the a it's a dead horse head with a – it's a very violent <laughs> uniform. <laughs> it's true. But also thinking about – oh, man, I had a conversation earlier today about surviving difficult family dynamics and, uh, or just d- difficult social dynamics, periods, not just with family but in other places where um, those who see things as they are have a really tough time because they're – other people who are dealing with it um, in order to deal with violence or trauma or pain cover up in ways that are really like actual actually disordered (laughs) and confusing for the person who wants to actually look and and see like okay well it is what it is and um, and so then why is everyone acting in these ways I think about that the way I've interpreted it or the way I understand it is Like, everyone's trying to take care of themselves in some way, shape, or form. And it comes off as some type of disordered way of thinking about the world because that's how they're coping. And sometimes it is, like, violent, abusive, and um, disorienting. Um, But I also – I guess I'm getting off on a, like, philosophical tangent with photography. Um, That is also one of, um, I think, a limiting factor – with photographs. And so when you were talking about truth, and um, the pursuit of that, what popped into my head is, I wonder if anyone who's listening who thinks about who still thinks of photography as truth, for instance, um, I don't think that way. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about photography for a long time. And I don't think that um, I was thinking of an art practice um, uh, that uses photography, but um, thinking about sort of the pitfalls of photographs, being perceived as being the truth or being real um and how do you kind of approach that and when you do take photographs and you do make photographs I'm kind of curious what your thoughts on that in general are but um but even in how you've tried to tackle this with your practice
1: yeah I think um I'll say one thing I think that empathic people are often um used in narratives of for other people, and that can get complicated. But, um, you know, I think of photography, I think I think of photography kind of as subversive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not that one image tells the truth, but that photography builds a narrative. I So I did a book, my first book was called Theater of War, and it was about these young guys who play airsoft. And back when I did it, that was still a kind of underground thing to to do. Now it's really common. And I realized as I was photographing them, and that's what I did in my grad work, and um, I realized as I was photographing them that I was actually recreating war images Hmm. of them. So I was performing the images that they were creating so I was recreating like a Robert Kappa photograph yeah. or I was recreating like a really famous Magnum photo from, you know, Kosovo. And so I was using the same devices that I'd seen and were embedded, you know, embedded in my, in my mind. And so I think it's not a question of whether photo- photographs are true. It's a question of um, what they're trying to point to and understanding that. Yeah. Then that, then you get the clarity of it and using it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question,
0: yeah, 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 okay, because because I'm also wondering like what how how do you approach the the photographic portion of the work like when you're taking a photograph or in in terms of this wanting to think about uncovering truth or your interest in truth so
1: that's what I was gonna I was what I was gonna say is um that I for many years after grad school I didn't actually make photographs the way that I used to make them mm-hmm. as a documentary photographer. I I used a lot of archival images mm-hmm. um and uh, I did make photographs but I didn't treat it the same way. So I did this project when I first came here which was yeah, it was a Midtown um and they they were tearing down Midtown Plaza at the time mm-hmm. and which was this big shopping center in the middle of town and They were doing it so slowly and ineffectively that it looked like 9-11, and it really did. I had just moved from New York, and 9-11 wasn't that far away, and I could feel the energy of that, and anybody who walked by, it was like an open wound in the middle of the city, and so I started photographing it, and I just spent like a couple of days, but then I did some research, and I found these photos, and I kind of did this contrasting. Um, Oh, it's only recently that I started really making pictures again Hmm. after grad school, and I did this series of bees documenting these dead bees from a beehive that I had. And that, I guess, was photographs, but it wasn't like it was just, you know, photographing dead bees. And so on my front porch. Um, But, yeah, I have been hesitant to get into a sort of similar kind of photo making practice like I was doing Mm -hmm. before the images I made for remembering were done on the way to the the project, and I did go out photographing, but it wasn't this. It just felt differently. I don't make as many pictures as I used to, and I'm usually I'm more economical with how I use them and how mm-hmm. I think about them. I just started using this four um, by five Graflex camera that Joan Lyons gave me. Um, yeah, I love it. And it's really slowed me down. And yeah. so and I'm, I've am i kind of come full circle when I started our um, photography. The first thing I learned was the darkroom. And my grandfather taught me how to use the darkroom. And I was just enthralled with the magic of the darkroom. And then for many years until we went digital, I was in the darkroom and did a lot of black and white work. I've kind of come back around to that and mm-hmm. the process being slowing down. I don't know how I'm gonna build but I miss making images. I love images. Images are just like I I've always loved photography. Yeah. I, I just love it. Yeah. I've never it's never gotten old. Yeah. I just didn't trust it. And I didn't trust myself for a while. And mm. grad school kind of did that. Yeah. Um for good, I think. Um I can make beautiful
0: images very easily. Yeah. Um and I don't trust that. That is Oh, that's another question. Okay, because I feel like we could go on I know, and we I'll could. I'll ask you about that off podcast because I I and I wonder if that also relates to your transition or the appearance of a transition from a photojournalist to an artist. And um and I'll say from my own experience, I uh transitioned from being like a biologist to being an artist. It took me some time to even call myself an artist because I love photography so much and I didn't really understand the difference between photography or being a photographer and being an artist. And I I still see all of that as a continuum. But I know that quite a few um, people who do make that transition really struggle with the aesthetics or the expectations of what it means to make things that look like art. So in thinking about you even Gathering photos along the way for for remembering really feels like this process of embodiment, or even what I'm what I think about in terms of this like collection of of history and what goes into history, and that it's not, you know, if you think about like the like a traditional sense of an art practice, um, that there's an inside or an outside. Not all artists are like that. I'm not like that, and it's comes with its pros and cons. Um, of your whole life being your art practice or your <laughs> art practice being based off of whatever, yeah, you know, your life. Well, anyway, but I I really enjoy thinking about that. Like you kind of noticing and gathering things, you know, going down to the lantern slide collection and finding those fish and having a, re- a response to it that's not necessarily tied to a piece or a project, but that it's a part of this journey that you're on in membering perhaps and maybe not but there's always this potential there which I feel like is a is an art practice and also to me it also sounds like and feels like in at least in my head sort of what it feels like to do the type of work that you're doing that is so complicated and also rooted in things that you don't necessarily know exist yet you know like you don't know everything about your family and there's also you can't know everything because you weren't born back in the 1600s so there's always this element of you know like maybe this has something to do with it or maybe i'm related to this person or maybe i will find out more about this or maybe i won't so i don't know i feel like it all kind of works together
1: i think um thinking about my different lives and how they're interconnected um i'm, re- I'm remembering this one story but i don't i want to tell the story but i don't want to forget my my train of thought <laughs> okay. um Uh, This friend of mine, her mother uh, always hid her tarot cards behind, like, the nonfiction section of her library. Mm -hmm. And um, I always loved, since I was a student, how photography indicated something I didn't know I was thinking about. Hmm. So going back over things, I would be like, oh, oh, wait, oh. I didn't realize that I thought that or like it gave me access to a part of my mind and my intuition that I I didn't have or trust or know or weren't, wasn't taught to trust. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think because of my family history, I was taught to distrust. And so I think the, one of the hardest things for me now having the the world of journalism is easy it's like this is bad this is good this is black this is white this is you know and you just work in that space trusting that voice that's like there's something about these fish embryo that I need to think about and it's but that's where the real good work is I think you you, if you can stay with it like we were we were talking about uh, I was listening to Joan Lyons talk last night and she just kept talking about how she would see something and have a visual idea and then it would take her maybe 10 years to to find what that work was really about. Mm-hmm. And I felt so happy to hear that because I think we don't value that any, and so, and photography is great because it's really quick, you know, mm-hmm. you it's like mental sketches and you see, oh yeah, there's this frog embryo or this fish embryo or there's this levee that I photographed in this certain way that's oh right that's what I was thinking about. That mm-hmm. levee actually is hiding the danger but isn't actually effectively protecting the people. Mm-hmm. And that all comes in that photograph. And I didn't know I was thinking that until I saw the photograph that I made of that thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I kind of I I really like that like, do, do do um that happens there. I, I mean, it's, I, cause I have, I have a different approach to photography and to photographs and I, I really enjoy that. That's how they work for you because I'm just like, oh wow, like that doesn't happen for me. <laughs> you work through, pro- you have your, pro- your process. Yeah. You have a wonderful, yeah, like yeah. different process. So yeah. I, I just, yeah, I really love that. I really enjoy that. Uh, yeah. Oh, is, was there something else that you were going to say? Cause I wasn't sure. If, if there was something you were going to say, and then you're going to follow your train of thought, and then come back to well, it. Well, that was the
1: story that that she always hid her tarot cards behind okay, the, yes. the kind yes. of nonfiction section, yeah. and I feel like I do, I do that a little bit. Like as a journalist, I always had the tarot cards, but I never told my journalist friends about yeah. it. And now, and I remember my first day at art school being, and I was older, and I was with these younger art students, and we had Chinese food down in Chinatown, and um, and the fortune cookies came, we all grabbed. <laughs> Yes. This is, these are my people. They're going to read that fortune cookie. They're going to believe it. They're going to live it. It's so <laughs> but funny. that's the stuff we don't know. That's yeah. the science, right? We yeah. don't know like so much of our brain we don't use. And the, these places that we are, you know, the creative process lets you tap into all of that knowledge that you yeah. don't have access to normally. I was yeah. listening. I was listening on the way over here. I was listening to this, um, and I was hoping I could work this in. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was listening to this interview with Feist. Feist, I think it's. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. On on uh, whatever one of the stations here, and um, she said, "I want to write songs that I can grow into." Hmm. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. That's a really nice thought to make work that you can grow into. And yeah. And again, I've been thinking because I've been looking a lot of. Women artists and their lifespan work, and thinking about how that devotion to a practice leads to this giant body of work that's prescient in some cases, that they might not even know mm-hmm. how prescient they were. I mean, nobody does, I guess. but um,
0: but yeah, do you feel like your work with membering is something that you're growing into?
1: Yeah. I'm really proud of membering. It's the thing I'm most proud of in the world that I've done. Um, I feel like it's it make me cry again, but I think it's the thing that, uh, where I'm most alive, I'm most present, even though I love this kind of word embodiment with that work and, but, but I'm there and, um, and I think we talked about this before too, I think when you're working on the edges of things as a woman artist, it's, it's a lonely little (laughs) desert. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, I don't, I don't regret it. I I don't think I would want to make, do anything differently. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know what it'll be in 10 years from now or how it will have a life or not have a life and Mm -hmm. fall flat and, and be, you know, um, disregarded. But, but I feel like, yeah, it's me, I'm there,
0: it's the work, you know. I- yeah. Well, Meredith, <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is a good place to conclude and also a good time to, to thank you for sitting with me and for sharing and talking again about your work and and having this conversation and uh, and about something that is, incredibly important and and really um, really moving and, and very touching as well so thank you so much really appreciate you i
1: appreciate you too and i'm grateful that you engaged with it it's been fun to talk to you about it i'm
0: glad <laughs> and there you have it i encourage you to visit meredith davenport's website to learn more about her work meredith also recommended some resources on psychogeography Those links are all in the show notes. To learn more about the Visual Studies Workshop, please visit us at vsw.org, where we have information about the Project Space Residency and our current artists in residence. Keep following us on Twitch and Instagram at the Visual Studies Workshop, and feel free to send me an email at erinosdavis at vsw.org. And a special request. Please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts We'd love to hear your thoughts on how we're doing and that time you take to review the show really helps spread the word. Thanks so much in advance for doing that. Now, this podcast is funded in part by the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature and the Leonian Foundation. And thank you so much for listening to this conversation with the artist, Meredith Davenport. In the meantime, please take care. Bye.